listening to audio from Faith Church, located on the north side of Indianapolis. If you'd like to check out more information about our church and ministry, please visit faithchurchindy.com. This morning we're reading from James chapter 4, and we'll be starting in verse 13 and ending in chapter 5, verse 6. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go to such and such a city, spend a year there, and buy and sell and make a profit. Whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow, for what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. But now you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Therefore, to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for your miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches are corrupted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver are corroded, and their corrosion will be a witness against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have heaped up treasure in the lost days. Indeed, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, cry out, and the cries of the reapers have reached the ears of the Lord of the Sabbath. You have lived on the earth in pleasure and luxury, and you have fattened your hearts as in a day of slaughter. You have condemned, you have murdered the just, and he does not resist you. This is the word of the Lord. You know, I, I think we, we all like to think of ourselves as, as pretty independent people, right? We, we value our independence. We, we like to think for ourselves. We like to make decisions for ourselves. We don't like necessarily other people telling us what to do or, or how to think. But there, there are some things in life that we do depend on, right? Like we, we depend on, on food to eat, on, on things to drink, and, and the rest we get at night, uh, although that particular one is a, a little, little time-sensitive right now because uh, we're still trying to convince our three-year-old daughter, Hazel, that she does, in fact, depend on these things, that you do need to eat your food because it helps you stay strong and, and, and grow, and yes, you do need to sleep. I know it's three in the morning and you want to be awake, but you really need to sleep, and your parents need to sleep. Uh, so if I forget where I'm at at some point, like I did first hour, maybe that's kind of in the background. But um, here's the thing that I kind of realized uh, as we were on vacation this past week in, in Myrtle Beach. We, we had the opportunity to go and spend just the four of us as a family, which was, which was a great time. But uh, as we were kind of in and around the pool and the beach, uh, I realized that there are some things in life that we can choose to be dependent on. That they're not always, you know, necessary, but we can place our dependence on these things. And, and the example that came to mind was for our daughter Hazel, who's three years old, she is dependent on her life preserver, her life jacket. When she's at the pool, when she's at the beach, she needs that to survive. And, and I similarly have another thing that I depend on when I'm at the beach, and that's SPF 50 or plus sunscreen applied in the morning, reapplied every couple hours, and wearing a hat and all this protection, and yet somehow I still got sunburn on my back. So I don't know what's going on. I'm a little jealous of those of you who don't have to deal with sunscreen, and, and maybe you're sitting there thinking, is he really that pale or is it the stage lights? I promise you, I'm really that pale. 
So um, here's the thing, right? Like, I'm not wearing sunscreen right now, nor is Hazel, if she's somewhere in this room, wearing a life preserver, right? There, at certain times in certain situations, we can choose to place our dependence on some of these things. And the reason I bring that up is because I think sometimes we approach our relationship with God, our faith in God, like a life preserver or like sunscreen, that we can choose in certain situations when we want to place our faith in Jesus, when we want to depend on him, when we want to rely on him, when we want to have relationship with him. And then there's times where, hey, life's, life's pretty good right now. I don't, I don't really need my faith. I don't really need this dependence on God. And so as we think about what James is saying, not just in these, these passages, these verses we're studying this morning, but throughout the book of James, is he's saying that we need to be dependent on God. And that a genuine faith, a faith that, you know, works its way out in, in action and in, in the way we speak and the way we interact with others, that kind of genuine faith, that faith leads to genuine dependence on God. And that's our key idea for this morning, that genuine faith leads to genuine dependence on God. So um, just to give you a heads up as to where we're going, uh, as we're looking at this idea of true dependence on God, there's four things we're going to look at that true dependence requires. And then at the end of that, I have one question. So four things that dependence requires and one question. So, uh, as we get going into James 4, 13 through 5, chapter 6, uh, I'd invite you to turn there if you haven't already. We're on page 16 and 18 of these journals that we have. Um, and uh, as we're turning there and getting situated with where we are, I want us to keep a few things in mind about context. Um, both the, the literary context of these verses, so where do these verses fit within the rest of James, but also where does James fit within the rest of Scripture? Uh, because those are important, not just for these verses, but I mean, those are some of the questions we should be asking any time we're, we're engaging with a passage of Scripture. So uh, context of where these verses fit within the book of James. If you can kind of Think back for the last few weeks of what we've been studying as we've talked about practicing faith, what kind of faith that James is talking about. Um, keep in mind that he has already taught on a lot of like wisdom literature type things. Like he has taught about having joy through trials, having a faith that is practiced through works. Uh, talks about showing no par partiality to people who come to your home or, or he gives wisdom and warning about taming the tongue. Uh, he gives warnings about living with an attitude of worldliness as opposed to holiness. So, so James, and I think this is something we've kind of been emphasizing along the way, is kind of the wisdom literature of the New Testament. What Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Lamentations, Job, what, what that kind of genre of literature is to the Old Testament, James, in a way, is to the New Testament. Yes, it's still a letter, but a lot of the themes that he picks up on and, and develops can be found in that uh, Old Testament wisdom literature. And we're going to bring out some of that as we uh, study through these verses. Uh, but the other thing that I want to remind us of is that there is nothing that is said in James that is not also contained throughout the rest of Scripture. That James is not out here on a limb like, well, if you take away this one verse in James, the rest of Scripture paints a totally different picture. No, he is right there with wisdom literature and the very words of Jesus. A lot of what James says here about the rich and the wealthy 
goes hand in hand with what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount and other places in the Gospels. So James, what James is saying goes along with the rest of Scripture, and that's important to, to keep in mind. Um, and then the last thing uh, is that James is addressing two different groups of people in these verses. You might have picked up on it as we were reading through it or as you were listening. There's, there's two instances where he says, come now. He's kind of addressing two different groups of people. Uh, you see that in verse 13 of chapter 4, and then again in verse 1 of chapter 5. Uh, so he says, come now, you who say, and you know, he continues, and he's addressing wealthy businessmen in the church. So this is a group within the church, a group of Christians that maybe have this habit or bad practice of how they go about their, their wealth and business. So we're going to talk about that. That's the first group. And then the second group that he's addressing in chapter 5 is, he says, come now, you rich. And so he's addressing this judgment that is coming for these rich oppressors that are outside the church. Now, there is some debate about that, and, you know, we can talk about that more later if you want. But um, the, the, the point that we need to make sure is that we distinguish between the people he's addressing in the church and the people he's addressing outside the church and how he kind of addresses those differently. Um, so with these, with these things in mind, uh, let's get started. So we're looking at, once again, we're looking at four things that dependence requires. And the first thing that dependence requires is humility. Dependence requires humility. Uh, look with me at verses 13 and the first part of 14. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. In this first group that, that James is addressing, he is addressing uh, their pride and arrogance in their planning and their self-sufficiency. Just for a bit of cultural context, uh, in ancient Palestine, in ancient Rome, travel or vacation, like the vacation that I just took, was not something that everyone got to do. It was a thing of luxury. Yeah, they, they made pilgrimages to Jerusalem during festivals and Passover and that type of thing, but they're not just going to pick up and like, hey, let's go spend some time in Rome or, oh, let's go vacation on the island of Crete or, you know, that didn't happen. So the fact that these businessmen are planning out their travel and planning out their travel to such degree of certainty shows their arrogance and pride in what they're doing. So, so James is kind of warning against that, but he's not simply just addressing those with wealth or means and saying, hey, you're wealthy out there, stop it, you know, give up your wealth, right? That it's not wealth or riches or anything like that that necessarily is evil, right? It is immor or amoral. It's amoral. It's neither good nor bad, but it's rather their attitudes of how they are interacting with what God has given them. Uh, you know, it might maybe kind of sounds the way, it, you know, we read it in Scripture. It maybe sounds a little like nonchalant of like, oh, you know, maybe we'll we'll go over here. We'll see what we can do. Maybe we'll make some profit over here, and then we'll go travel over here. But but what James is saying that their attitudes show is like, we will go here, we will stay a year, we will do this, we will make a profit, and this will be the result. That they are so confident that what they're doing is going to earn them a profit. And so he says, no, what you need is a little bit of humility. But it also requires a little bit of perspective. So that's the second thing that de dependence requires. Dependence requires perspective. It says, you do not know what tomorrow will bring. 
What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. The question that James asks here, uh, what is your life? It's almost this like rhetorical exasperation of a question that he's asking them. Like, what, what is your life? Like, who, who do you think you are? Like, look around you. What sets you apart from every other person that has come and lived and died on this earth that you think that unlike everyone else that comes before you, that came before you, you have the ability to be, you know, manifest your own destiny? What is your life? Unless this rhetorical question goes unanswered, and they're like, well, he didn't give us the answer. He answers it for them. Your life is a mist. It's a vapor. It's a puff of smoke that is here and seen one moment and gone the next. That these wealthy businessmen in the church who are making these plans arrogantly, pridefully saying, this is what we're going to do. He says, no, you need some perspective. So if we look back to uh, Proverbs 27, verse 1 says, Do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring forth. And then in Luke, uh, as Jesus is uh, talking to some of his disciples and some of his followers are having a disagreement about wealth and what someone owes him, he tells this parable of the rich fool who gets an incredible harvest So much so that he doesn't know what to do with it. It won't fit into his barns and storehouses. And so instead of thinking about what he could do to help others, he says, no, I'm going to tear down my barns. I'm going to build bigger barns and I'm going to fill those up. And then my soul will be satisfied and I will never have a worry again in the world. And Jesus in the parable says, and he died that night. What good does his wealth do him now? Right? So James is warning these people that they get a certain pride in themselves for how they plan their future with such self-confidence. Like, I know if I invest in this way, I'll be set. I I know, none of the the people on Wall Street know this. I I know this is going to pay off. But once again, we're not criticizing planning. We're not criticizing saving. Those are all values that are discussed elsewhere in Scripture, elsewhere in Proverbs, that it is good to save. It is good to work hard. It is good to leave something for the, your children's children. These are all very good things to, to seek after and to plan and do all those things. So he's not criticizing that, but he's criticizing the attitude of, I know what I'm going to do, and I know I will be successful. And he says, all such boasting is evil not just because of the object of their boasting, but because of the arrogant and irreverent disregard for who God is and what he has given them. So, James says they need a little bit of perspective. Instead of making plans, hoarding resources, or making business deals uh, as though they were in control of every aspect of every detail, James says that we are to qualify our plans and hopes for the future with reference to the will of the Lord. Now, this is where it gets a little bit tricky. Because externally, outwardly, someone who makes plans, saves, does all this planning with regard for the will of the Lord, like asking and seeking God's will and inviting him and his wisdom into this, 
and someone else who does all this planning and, and business propositions, all this stuff, without regard for the will of the Lord, externally, those might look like they're doing the same thing. That there's, they're both saving, they're both investing. What's, what's so different? And so what James is, is advocating for is not just this like external change, right? Like he's not just saying, hey, after everything you say, just add this caveat of if the Lord wills. You know, if that's what James was saying, then I might need to, you know, put a new signature on my text messages. Like, hey, I'll, I'm going to stop at the store and get some milk. If the Lord wills. Or I'm going to go pick up the, the girls from school. If, if the Lord wills. No, because that kind of, you know, ritual over, you know, repetition of a statement, you know, it can become glib. It can become, it can lose its meaning and impact on us. Rather, the reason this is tricky, maybe a little bit difficult, is because what James is advocating for is a heart change, an attitude change. That the way we interact with God's will, it should not be crippling. It should not give us fear of like, well, I don't know what God's will is. No, it, it's a matter of entering into and going through life with this perspective that God is in control. God is God, and we are not. So that's the perspective that we need. So, time for a little bit of an experiment. Uh, kids, I know you guys are here. I see a lot of you in here. Uh, I want you to raise your hand if you think you are smarter than your parents. Raise your hand if you think you are smarter than your parents. Or for those of you who are adults in here, um, when you were, you know, seven, eight, nine years old, did you think you were smarter than your parents? Okay, a few hands. If we're honest, you know, if you're, if you're still on your parents' insurance and you don't pay your own taxes, we can just kind of agree that you're probably not smarter than your kids. Maybe in some things, but... All right, so next part of the experiment. Parents, um, raise your hand if you think your kids are smarter than you. Okay, a few more hands, a few more hands. Now, as you think about your kids, raise your hand if you think that your kids have walked through life with a full and complete understanding that you are smarter than them. That they are always aware that you are smarter and they trust you no matter what. They always listen to what you say. Where'd all the hands go? <laughs> right? And, and I make this point because I think this is how we interact with God sometimes. Right? That as our Father, He is obviously all-knowing, omniscient, completely sovereign over everything. And we might externally say like, yeah, God, I recognize you are smarter than me. God, you, you know better than me. Right? Like we can externally process that. But like how we live, how we make decisions, and how we choose to interact with others communicates something differently that says, God, I know you're smarter. I'd admit that, but I'm going to do my way anyway. I'm going to choose to do what I want to do anyway. And maybe it's not even a disregard for like, God, I know you're smarter. Maybe we just completely disregard God. Oh, like, I don't even know if God exists. So why am I worried about what some God might care? I'm just going to do what I want. And so genuine faith that James is talking about and trying to lead this church and lead our church into requires this dependence. And, and dependence requires um, humility and it requires perspective. Now, before he gets to addressing the second group, you know, come now, you rich. Before he gets there, there's this very interesting verse 17 
Um, and as I was reading through this many times in the last few weeks, this, this verse kind of kept confusing me. So I'm like, what is this doing here? I kind of get what it's doing in context, but it doesn't really seem to fit. Like if you took verse 17 out, the rest of the passage would flow together very well. Uh, and so verse 16, it says, as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Verse 17 he shifts from the second person saying, you know, you do this, come now you who do this and say this, to a third person. Um, so whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. And so it was interesting to kind of dig into some commentaries and see what other people who are smarter than me had to say about this. Uh, but there is some kind of universal agreement that this statement, verse 17, was probably a, you know, fairly well-known statement amongst the early church, uh, just as like, yeah, if you know the right thing to do and you don't do it, that's sin. Like, it just kind of as a, you know, maxim or pithy statement, uh, and yet he includes it here. It's like, okay, why does he include it here? Uh, and, and I think maybe for one of two reasons. One, I think in a way it's summarizing because he is now shifting to talking about those outside the church. He's using it as almost a summary statement, like, okay, everything I have said up till now, including this stuff about, you know, wealth and planning, so everything about taming the tongue and showing partiality or not showing partiality, all this stuff, all that, you have no more excuses. You know the right thing to do. And that's what I think he's also trying to emphasize, like, you have been told that this is what God's will is, this is what you are supposed to do, this is the attitude you're supposed to have, this is how you're supposed to go through life. So you no longer can say, well, I didn't know. What, I, I didn't know I was supposed to do that. No, he says, so you now know the right thing to do, and if you refuse to do it, it is sin. So he, he kind of makes sure that they know where they stand. So genuine faith produces in us genuine dependence, and it requires humility and perspective. And then it also requires surrender. If you look with me at chapter 5, the first three verses. Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. So, as I've mentioned... James now shifts in terms of the type of people he's addressing. Uh, and there's some clues here, um, talking about your flesh eaten like fire, um, talking about the miseries coming upon you, give good indication that the people he you're talking to are not the redeemed people of God, that the future ahead for them is judgment, not peace in, in heaven with their God, right? And, and so he's addressing these wealthy oppressors, these rich oppressors, and he's warning them of their impending judgment that comes from a blatant and wicked disregard for God. So the other thing that kind of clues us into that these are probably people outside the church, uh, James, Paul, Peter, John, all, all the New Testament writers who are writing letters to churches, uh, if there is an issue of discipline that's needed to be talked about, they don't shy away from it, but they also surround, you know, the truth with, like, the gospel and grace. And, and that doesn't really seem to be present here. So James is more than likely talking to people outside the church, talking to those rich who are oppressive. So how are they misusing the wealth that God has given them? How are they doing that? I think they're doing it in two ways. 
And, and the first is that uh, they are hoarding wealth and accumulating more than what they need. He, he talks about that in, in verses 2 and 3. And he says, um, you know, that your garments are, are, are being eaten by moths. Your food is rotting. Your gold and silver are corroding. Uh, basically, he's pointing out, like, all these things, your wealth, your riches, your purple fine linens, they're not even being put to good use. No one's using them. The food you have in your storehouses is rotting because no one's eating it. Your gold and silver isn't in use, and it's corroding. So there's kind of this, this you're not even, why are you even hoarding it all? You're not even putting it to good use. Um, and something that uh, Pastor Jeff pointed out in our sermon development meeting that I thought was particularly interesting is that there's probably also a bit of irony going on here because James talks about silver and gold corroding when, if you think about it, silver and gold don't corrode, and that's why they've been valued for centuries. Like, that's why they're such a valuable material, even in ancient times before there was currency, like this was the currency, because it was valuable. And he says, even your gold and silver corrode. But it's not because of, you know, just it is what it is and you just got a bad batch of gold. You know, if we look at Galatians, uh, what Paul says in Galatians 6, 8, that it's actually your actions and your heart that corrode what you have. And it's your, your heart motives that is corroding. So your, your things are rotting, your, your gold and silver are corroding because of the position of your heart. So if, if hoarding and, and mass accumulation of earthly possessions is not the answer, what is surrender? Well, I've hinted at it already. It's surrender. That dependence requires surrender. Surrender is not necessarily throwing everything to the birds or throwing everything out in the street uh, and saying, well, I'm going to live a life not, you know, bound by anything. Um, but it's simply holding everything with an open hand. That everything that God has given us, our family, our job, our possessions, our house, our cars, um, you know, our retirement, whatever it is, everything we hold with an open hand. You know, James, earlier in his letter, in James 1.17, he says, Every good and perfect gift comes down from above, from the Father of lights. He says, everything, every good thing is from above. And so, yes, we need humility. Yes, we need perspective. But we also need surrender. That instead of holding on so tightly to everything we can get, it's this recognition like, okay, I'm going to hold this with an open hand. Yes, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to plan. I'm going to save. I'm going to try and be smart uh, with money and be frugal. And, and all these things are very valuable and everything. But I'm not going to hold so tightly that I miss the greater picture of who God is. So I, I mentioned earlier that our family spent the last week uh, at Myrtle Beach, and it, it was a great time. Uh, one of my favorite things that we got to do was just go for walks on the beach. I love walking on the beach, just seeing all, you know, the waves. And Hazel, as her first experience with the beach, loved it. She loved the waves, lo loved chasing the seagulls, but her favorite thing was all the seashells. Uh, and and I, you and I, and pretty much everyone in here probably would look at most of the shells she was picking up and be like, 
That's, like, that's just a broken piece. Like, why are you collecting that? But she would literally couldn't even walk down the beach because she's just so busy picking up every single little piece and scrap of shell. And, you know, there, we had this bucket that we carried around with us that she would put all these shells into. And um, she would even pick up garbage that she thought, like, came from the ocean and looked pretty. Like, oh, well, we'll take that and we'll throw it away. But that's not, that's not anything pretty. And I, and I even tried to, like, I found a couple examples of some, some actually pretty nice shells. Like, hey, Hazel, look at this one. Why don't you collect something like this? She's like, well, add it to the bucket, but I'm going to keep collecting everything else, right? And, and, and I tried to, like, lovingly, like, tell her, like, no, just, just look for the good ones. Like, don't worry about all the scraps. And she didn't care. She, and then five minutes into her walk, this, you know, gallon bucket is full of shell scraps. The, the shell scraps that if you walk around the streets of Myrtle Beach, uh, they, they, like, pour it into the concrete to try and make it look pretty, right? And, and, like, that's what she's collecting is basically chunks of concrete, and yet I think when God looks at us and how we collect, how we hoard what we have, he, he says, oh, you're, you're collecting gold? Oh, that's cute. You're collecting heavenly pavement. <laughs> right? That he looks at us, I think, in a similar way sometimes. When we are so obsessed with trying to hold on to everything, get every little scrap, everything, he's trying to say, hey, no, there's something better. Look at this. There is something better for you. And we're like, no, I want my shells. I want my shells. Don't take them away from me. I think God has a way of using the things of life like parenting to show us these truths of how we interact with him. And what James is saying here about what we do with our treasure and where our treasure is is not an idea foreign to Scripture, right? You might already be thinking of this passage from Matthew chapter 6 of Jesus from the Sermon on the Mount. He says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So will you surrender your shells for the riches of God. Not riches in the material sense. No, the riches of God, meaning when we are with him in his presence and we will throw down our golden crowns because they're meaningless to us now. We'll say, no, I want to be present with you. Will you surrender your shells? So if we want to be dependent on our God who cares for us. Yes, it requires humility, perspective, and surrender. And it also requires repentance. In this last part of this section, James is condemning these rich oppressors for their sinful and abusive practices and warning of the impending judgment from God. Starting in verse 4, he says, Behold the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. So the, the first way that people had been misusing their wealth was by hoarding and accumulating. And the second way was by um, living out injustices and in how they dealt with their workers. 
that they were fraudulent in how they dealt with their workers. It was not an uncommon practice for someone who had land, who paid people to come work in his field to say, hey, you know, you're a day laborer, come work in my field, I'll, I'll pay you this wage. And then at the end of the day, uh, they would say, okay, I, I need my wage because I need to buy my daily bread. Like, you know, there, there wasn't much saving for some of these poorer laborers. And the, the rich, wealthy landowner would say, oh, you know what, come back tomorrow, I'll pay you tomorrow. And, and so they come back tomorrow and say, well, why don't you work another day, and then I'll pay you at the end of the day. And this was a not-so-foreign practice of never actually owning up and paying what was owed to the people who worked. And so James is saying to these people, he's, you know, addressing these um, fraudulent, rich oppressors that, like, the wages, the payment that is owed to them is crying out, like, like the blood of Abel cried out to God, or, or the, the cries of the Israelites um, that were sold in slavery in Egypt, cry, the cries rose up. It, it got to hear the, the, it got to the point where God heard the cries. He heard the cries, and it says, it has reached the Lord of hosts the Lord of angel armies. God and his armies are ready and waiting, and this judgment is coming. And so who do you think you are? Do you think you can deceive God? Do you think you are smarter than God, that you can outwit the system? Now, you know what is wrong and right, and you are choosing wickedness. And James recognizes that it, it seems as though the rich and wicked are, are getting ahead. You know, he says, you, you know, you are live this life in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. But this self-indulgence will not last, and judgment is coming. So if this part is kind of addressed towards people outside the church, right, these rich oppressors that James is talking about, why does he include it in a letter to the church? Why, why is it here? And I think we can maybe point to two things. One is as a warning. That he is warning, you know, maybe the people he, he addressed in the first part uh, of the, the rich and wealthy uh, who plan, biz, you know, plan their business with pride and arrogance. He's warning them, hey, don't become like this. Change now. Do not become like this. Um, don't participate in this type of behavior that you see but I think also as, as an encouragement in enduring patience. And patience is actually a theme that gets picked up in verse 7 for next week, uh, but it's this encouragement to, like, their judgment is coming. God will avenge. Be patient. So in either case, whether rich or poor, there is always a call for repentance, right? That, that whether we maybe feel oppressed or maybe if we're the oppressor, there is need for repentance for both of us. The, the specifics of what we might be repenting for might look different, but there is repentance. We all need repentance, a recognition that we have not done what we should be doing, and we have left undone things we should be doing. And like verse 17, we often know the right thing to do and choose anyway to not do it. So you might be sitting here wondering, like, how exactly does this apply to me? Uh, I am neither a rich oppressor or a wealthy business person. I just, you know, work my nine to five and do what I need to. Or, or maybe you're sitting here and you're thinking like, I don't even know what wealth means. I barely scrape by week to week. Or, you know, I came in here with the clothes on my back and nothing else. I don't understand what this has to do with me. 
And so I want us to all, regardless of where you come in uh, to this room from, what perspective you come from, to, to ask yourself this question. How big is your view of God? Not how big is God, because I think we could all kind of give some sort of a right answer as to how big God is, but how big is your view of God? Is God big enough to take care of you and give you all that you need to clothe you, to feed you? That, that if your social security isn't there in 30 days or in 30 years, or your, your investment in Bitcoin doesn't work out, do you, is your view of God, is he big enough to take care of you? Because I think often when we find ourselves not being dependent, we try to be independent from God, it's because we think he, 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 can't, he can't do it. We want him to. Like he, he, I, I'm either too small or too insignificant. He's not going to care for me. So I got to take care of this on my own. Or I don't even know if God even cares about me. I don't even know if he knows my name. I've got to do what I've got to do. So how big is your view of God? You know, heaven forbid, if, you know, government shuts down, the United States cease to exist, is your view of God, is, is he big enough to care for you and your family, to provide clothing and food and the things that you need? Now, I, I ask this question because I often fall into having a too small view of God. I'll admit that right now, that I often do not imagine and picture God and, and view him and my relationship to him in the correct perspective. That he is, you know, what I often view as some tiny, minuscule part of who he is. And he is so much more. Like, he is wonderful. He is loving. He is caring. He is sovereign. He, he cares about each one of us. And I think I often just forget that. Like, I, I, I get caught up in the busyness of life or, or distractions, and I forget the fullness of who God is. So whether, whether you have it all or whether you feel like you have nothing, the temptation is the same for all of us, right? The temptation is to hold on tightly, to hold so tightly. Don't let go to the $5 you have or the $5 million you have. It, we want to hold tightly. The temptation is the same, but my prayer for myself and for all of us, is that we would consider how God is calling us into deeper faith, how he is calling us into deeper dependence on him and growing in humility, growing in perspective, growing in surrender, and growing in repentance along the way. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I, I echo the cries of the centurion that came to Jesus and said, I believe, help my unbelief. I feel like I pray that prayer far too often. Like, I, I believe, God, help my unbelief. Help me to have a more full understanding and picture of who you are. You remind us in your word that we do not need to be anxious about our life. We, we do not need to be anxious about what we will eat or what we will drink or about the clothes that we wear. Because life is, is more than food, and you, you remind us, look, look at the birds of the air. Look at the lilies of the field. They, they neither sow nor reap, yet you, our Heavenly Father, feeds them. You, you clothe the lilies in, in greater splendor than, temple, than Solomon saw in, in his temple. And Father, remind us of who we are. Remind us of our 
need for you, our dependence on you. Teach us humility and perspective. And Father, ultimately help us to surrender. Bring us to places of repentance where we, we cast ourselves on you, not because we necessarily have to, but because we choose to. We, we recognize we need you. Thank you for the fact that you are so much bigger than any of us could comprehend. For loving, for, lo- loving us, caring for us, and leading us into your good plans for us. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.